About seven years ago, my wife and I were out in Denver for my brother-in-law's wedding. They decided to have what they were calling a preception instead of a traditional wedding reception. So their preception took place the night before the wedding instead of directly after the ceremony. And I knew that I'd be giving a toast that night. So a few days in advance, I began to think about what I might say, how I might be able to bless them. And my wife Grace and I had already been married for about 10 years at the time. So I started to reflect on the days and hours leading up to our own wedding and how it's not uncommon for the bride and groom to begin to have last minute doubts right before they get married. She might be thinking, is he the one or will I be able to make him happy? And he might be asking himself, will I really be able to love her the way that she deserves to be loved? But I think the hard truth is that we're really just not good enough for that, are we? None of us can wake up every morning and will ourselves to love our husband and wife the way that they deserve to be loved. The only way this thing works is by waking up every morning and choosing to let the love of Christ into us. And when we do that, something magical can happen in a marriage. Because somehow when we let the love of Christ into us, the love of Christ pours out of us. And a husband and wife can do that day after day. Marriage can become this incredible gift. And I think one of the reasons why marriage is so sacred is because in marriage, a husband and a wife will carry a banner. And that banner gives a unique testimony about God's love and faithfulness. Because in God's design for marriage, a man and a woman will experience intimacy and demonstrate kindness and patience and perseverance and truthfulness and humility and self-sacrifice and forgiveness. But because we live in a fallen world where sin has corrupted everything, it also means that in marriage, we will often find ourselves in situations where our patience is being tested. It means that in marriage there will be whole seasons in which we are required to persevere through hardship. It means that we'll be tempted to lie to each other and hide from each other. It means there'll be no shortage of opportunities to be selfish and proud and rude. And the very intimacy and faithfulness that marriage requires between a husband and his wife creates space for unfaithfulness and a lack of intimacy to exist. But it is the marriage relationship that God has chosen to describe his relationship with his people. 
So when we act unfaithfully in marriage, it's a big deal. And it matters to God. And I'm not only referring to infidelity, but to all the ways that we fail to express God's love to our spouse. Because when we claim that we have received the love of God and we fail to live in any way that doesn't reflect his love, we're taking his name in vain. Good morning. Please stand with me and turn to Matthew chapter 5 for the reading of God's word. going to begin in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now move over to verses 27 through 32 with me, which is our chosen text for this morning. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You may be seated. So what exactly are we dealing with this morning? Well, I'll tell you this. We're dealing with issues that have caused some of us to stay home this morning. We're dealing with issues that would have caused some of us who are sitting here right now to stay home had they known that this would be the text we'd be looking at today. Think about that for a minute. Think about how electric this subject matter is for that to be the case. When we talk about adultery and divorce and remarriage, we're conjuring up all sorts of devastation and confusion and hurt and anger and turmoil for all sorts of different reasons for different people. When we talk about adultery and divorce and remarriage, we're talking about broken promises and unmet expectations and shattered dreams. We're talking about childhood trauma that causes daughters to become mistrustful of men and sons 
who are afraid of commitment because they've never seen a man love a woman well. And daughters who crave the affection of men and chase after it their entire lives. And sons who struggle with the biblical idea of God being a good father. And sons and daughters who are experiencing anger and frustration and depression. We're talking about financial stress that makes it seem impossible not to worry. And a church that has fewer resources to share with one another and with the poor. We're talking about the end of long-standing friendships and churches that have been blown apart and judgment and grief and shame. So if your heart is beating faster right now and you're already feeling the weight of this sermon, I need you to stay with me this morning. Don't check out. There's something here this morning that's worth listening to. So as you can see, I brought three baskets with me today. And I think that when we talk about adultery and divorce and remarriage, we tend to fall into one of these three baskets given enough life experience. So I'd like for us to listen in so that we can gain some perspective from those of us in each of these baskets. This is basket number one. And this represents those of us who are devout Christians. We might sound like this. I love the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. But if I'm being honest, sometimes it's hard for me to love my neighbor. I understand her marriage was toxic for a long time and divorce was a last resort. Even still, the word of God on remarriage is clear in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul writes to the church saying, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Basket number two represents those of us who are unrepentant Christians. Sometimes we sound like this. What's the harm in looking if I don't act on it. We reconnected on Facebook. We mostly just talk about life. It's so nice to have someone who listens to me. I feel like he's the only person who truly understands me. His wife doesn't even appreciate him. 
Kids are resilient. They know I love them. They'll be fine. Just give it time. And our last basket, basket number three, this represents those of us who are stigmatized Christians. I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. For years, I waited and waited for someone from our church to step in and speak the truth to my husband. They knew how he treated me, but they never got involved. Instead, they showed up at my doorstep when I finally couldn't take anymore, and they had the nerve to ask me why I was leaving. In church, our pastor likes to say, we're family. Well, if that's the case, I must be the black sheep of this family, because I always feel like people are keeping me at arm's length. Now this morning, I'm going to speak a word to each of us as we find ourselves in one of these three baskets. But this word has to be received in the shadow of the cross. So first, I need to speak with you about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In order to understand the words of Jesus that we read in verses 27 through 32, we need to understand that he spoke them immediately following verses 17 through 20, when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's talk about righteousness. I think verse 17 and verse 20 capture the essence of the point Jesus is making in all of Matthew 5. And the point is that a better righteousness is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. By leading off with this statement about fulfilling the law and then declaring unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is leading his disciples into the question, then who can possibly enter the kingdom of heaven? Or who can possibly be declared righteous in God's sight? Now, this is important for us to understand because it means that in the six teachings that we read in Matthew 5, Jesus isn't interested in merely raising the standard for what strict adherence to God's law looks like. Instead, I think he's making our unrighteous condition plain for us to see. Or to put it in simple language, he's giving us the bad news. And we like to talk about the good news, don't we? As we should. But do we really believe the bad news? 
I like the way Frederick Buechner writes about this. He describes the bad news as, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. The bad news is that we're all sinners, murderous liars, violent thieves, only content in the pursuit of our own pleasures, morally bankrupt and full of lust, idolatrous and unthankful. We are at least this much, every one of us, apart from Christ. The bad news is that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become righteous in God's sight. So when we look at Matthew 5, I think the fundamental truth that Jesus wants us to hear goes like this, if you'll allow me. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, you can't be righteous, and you can't fulfill the law, and you can't enter the kingdom of heaven apart from me. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, you can't be righteous, and you can't fulfill the law, and you can't enter the kingdom of heaven apart from me. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, you can't be righteous and you can't fulfill the law and you can't enter the kingdom of heaven apart from me. You have heard that it was said, do not break your oath. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, you cannot be righteous and you cannot fulfill the law, and you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven apart from me. And Jesus finishes these six teachings in Matthew 5 with a crushing overstatement in verse 48 when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants us to get the bad news that we are hopelessly imperfect and deserving of wrath. If the church doesn't have ears to hear the bad news, we'll never truly receive the good news that Jesus died for our sins. And the gospel of God will become little more for us than a shallow mantra that looks like hypocrisy to the world. So if you can only hold on to one idea from Matthew 5, I think it should be this one. That Jesus knows there is nothing we can possibly do on our own to become righteous and enter the kingdom of heaven. So he fulfills the law by loving God 
with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. And he fulfills the law, loving his neighbor by positioning himself on the cross as the grace of God, squarely between our sin and God's righteous judgment. So I think I'll finish reading Beekner's thought on the gospel. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a damn. The news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen to him, just as in fairy tales, extraordinary things happen. And this brings us all to the foot of the cross, where extraordinary things happen. All of us dependent on the grace of God, all of us with our hand out, hoping for mercy. Listen to the good news according to the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. So I think we're ready now to turn our attention back to our three baskets. I'd like to begin with basket number two and speak a word to those of us who are unrepentant Christians. This basket represents those of us who are saying no to God right now and, lose, and choosing to live in sin. 
This basket represents a willingness to take the Lord's name in vain. So whether you're being controlled by lustful desires or engaging in an affair right now, or whether you've been unwilling to forgive and grant reconciliation, or maybe you need to acknowledge to God that you made a decision to remarry out of fear instead of faith. The word to those of us who are unrepentant is simply this from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. No matter how difficult or painful it may be, gouge it out, cut it off, and throw it away. Get rid of the thing in your life that is causing you to sin and keeping you from God. Now is the time to repent and accept God's invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven. And besides, your heavenly Father is hosting a party and it's already started. There's plenty of food and lots of laughter. And there's still time to come in and take a seat at the table. And now the word for basket number one the devout. Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read it from Luke 7, verses 36 through 48. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. 
Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. He has shown us what is good. And what does the Lord require of us? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Act justly. Check. Walk humbly with our God. Check. Love mercy. Love mercy. Love mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The call is to be merciful. The promise is that we too will be shown mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. So in light of the acceptance that we have received from God, we need to learn to delight in saying to one another, neither do I condemn you. And now for our third basket, the stigmatized. This basket represents those of us who carry the weight of shame and unworthiness. This basket represents those of us who may be caught up in the ruthless cycle of lust and repentance. And those of us who have committed adultery against our wife or against our husband. And those of us who are separated or divorced. And those of us who are now remarried after our first or second or third or fourth marriage ended in divorce. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin and shame is not your identity. You are a child of God, forgiven and accepted, just the same as the rest of us. You are blessed because it is Christ who has called you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To the adulterer, God accepts you. To the divorced, God 
accepts you. To the remarried, God accepts you. But some of us need to hear something else this morning. To the adulterer, we accept you. To the divorced, we accept you. To the remarried, we accept you. We accept you. We accept you. I want to read you something from Luke chapter 6. I'm just going to read to you from Luke 6, verses 12 through 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay. Now I'm going to read you the same thing, more or less, from Matthew chapter 10. And here we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Did you hear it? Matthew just gave his testimony. Praise God. Listen again to verse 3. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, if anything, we might think that Luke would have noted that Matthew was the former tax collector of the bunch. He certainly would have known about Matthew's past. But Luke doesn't consider it worth mentioning. But Matthew was given the great privilege of writing his gospel. Matthew had the chance to rewrite history and remove the stigma attached to his name the stigma of tax collector, a greedy cheater, a dishonest liar, an unworthy sinner. Matthew had a chance to hide and say, let's bury this shameful past of mine. This is a story about Jesus. Nobody needs to know about what I used to do. But Matthew gives his testimony the tax collector. 
because Matthew understands what Jesus has done for him. And because he had been forgiven much, he loved much. So don't hide what God has done for you. Don't try to rewrite history. Maybe instead of trying to bury our sin and shame, it's time to raise it like a banner to let the world and the church know what God has done for us. So the word to those of us who have been stigmatized this morning is this. Let your light shine. Now this morning, we're gonna take communion. And this is where the devout and the stigmatized will gather together at the foot of the cross. Over the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wanna invite those of us who have been unrepentant to first be reconciled to your husband or wife if they have something against you. And then please also come and be reconciled with your Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and we love you. And we recognize that we are nothing without you. We are lost and hopeless and we thank you. Thank you for your mercy toward us and your generosity. Jesus, thank you for loving us by laying your life down for us. And I ask, Lord, that you would use this word today to heal those of us who need to be healed and to forgive those of us who come to you for forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.